I just have to say it. Sometimes you shouldn't say the things you're thinking, but we read a, song, we read a, we read a text of, uh, of Scripture where somebody gets impaled on a stake, and then we say, thanks be to God, right? <laughs> Whoa, we're not going there yet, but we will get to that point, actually, and it is a remarkable story. But I want to start with the biggest sports story of the year. What is it? Yeah, that's why I'm wearing royal blue, because I, I want you to know before you throw tomatoes, if that really, I mean, that is a big story, all right? 29 years, playoffs, big deal. Biggest story, LeBron James goes back to Cleveland. I mean, that really does have to be the story. Can you imagine what this was like for Andrew Wiggins? Number one draft, whoa, Cleveland, ugh. And then LeBron James is coming to Cleveland. You know, you, whoa, this is going to be so cool to be able to play with them. And then Andrew Wiggins goes to the, the Timberwolves. I mean, you can just imagine what, what life must, have been, must be like for Andrew Wiggins these days. And he's saying everything right, you know, in Minnesota, but it is Minnesota. And, <laughs> I mean, the Timberwolves, is it? And, you know, he's doing a good job. But, but I mean, think about this. Who would not? Who would not want to give anything they could to play with Le LeBron James? I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, there are a couple of things. One is you're going to win a lot more games that way. And the second thing is, is your game is going to get better and better. You play with somebody like LeBron, and there's no doubt you're going to just get better and better along the way. Now, because this isn't the ESPN channel, and we're actually talking about God's Word, let's get back to Genesis, all right? And we'll spend the rest of our time there. We see this picture of a God who we're reminded is mighty and trustworthy. He is incredible. The way he works in the midst of histories and setbacks and opportunities, he's just as extraordinary as God. And, and we're being given this invitation as we read this book to worship him and to, to follow him. Who would not want to worship and follow him? I mean, uh, with no apologies to LeBron James, God, God just I is the one. And that's the invitation for us, is who would not? Who would not want to follow hard after God himself? And we've talked about what that invitation to worship him and to follow him looks like in the past couple of weeks. Last Sunday, we talked about what it meant to follow him boldly, a bold courage to be able to follow him even clumsy. Even if we're going to do it clumsy, let's follow hard after Jesus. One of the phrases around here is do it scared. I mean, why not when God is the one who is on our side? And two weeks ago, we talked about what it meant to follow him completely, not just occasionally, not just kind of the, the one day a week thing, but wholeheartedly and with our whole, whole of our life, all of our week and all of our years to be able to do it in the same way that Jesus uh, said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. I want my life to be about your will. That that invitation, that invitation is actually there for us. You know, it's a little bit like playing with LeBron. All the attention is going to be on LeBron, but it's kind of like, uh, who cares? It's not going to be about me, but who cares? And then we see this invitation for us to worship God, this God. And it's, and it's not going to be about you anymore. But who cares? If we get to be that person, and 
live life that way. And so in Genesis, we see this God, and we say, God, you are so incredible. And our focus has been in this series, who, who might, uh, who, how might we live into that? Uh, to let the might of God shape the course of our lives. And so today we're going to talk about what that looks like in this whole category of faithfulness. The courage actually expresses itself in a life that is filled with faithfulness. God invites us into courage, and it's courage that is seen in faithfulness. Now, before we go there, I, I just want you to know, this is not a requirement, right? It's not like, okay, Mark, what's the next thing we've got to do in order to be a Christian? You know, and, and it can kind of sound that way. We just kind of, okay, uh, I, I know you didn't know this when you got into it, but here's, here's requirement number 25. Uh, faithfulness isn't a requirement in, in, in God's relationship with us. It's always been about grace, right? It's not about what we do. It's about what he's done and what he invites us into. It has always been about grace. I mean, you think about it. The thief on the cross that is nailed or tied to the timbers and he suddenly looks over at Jesus and realizes he is not who everybody says they, they, he is. He is. He is extraordinary. He's God. And the thief says to Jesus, you know, remember me when you come into your father's kingdom. And, and Jesus says, okay, there are like 26 things you got to do before you die. I mean, the guy's doing nothing. He's got minutes to live. He's got nothing to offer. And God says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. What an extraordinary God that is. So when we talk about faithfulness this morning, it's not like it's one of those requirements you've got to put into your life in order to be accepted by God. He's not that kind of God. Faithfulness is, is simply a desire God has to restore the way we were made. You see, when you were made, when God designed your life and made you and me in the image of God, you know how he meant me to be originally in my original expression of who I am? Faithful. It's the way I was made to be. And so when we talk about faithfulness this morning, this is what it is. It's just simply an invitation to be restored to the person you were made to be and I was made to be in the first place. Wouldn't you like to go back to the original? And that's what we see here. This invitation to faithfulness is not because we must, but because we may. That's what God's about. It's not because you must, it's because you may. You actually have the opportunity to live that way. Now, I'll just say this. You'd be a fool not to take God up on his invitation. An invitation to be characterized by faithfulness. I mean, who's foolish enough to shrug that one off? And so that's what we see here in this story. And now we get to the text. It's in Genesis chapter 28 this morning. And it's a little bit of a surprise because it, verse, verse 1 of 28 starts out with, with Judah. And you say, I thought this story was about Joseph. Uh, and it was, 
But it's like all of a sudden, everything has pivoted and turned in another direction. We go back one verse into chapter 37, and look at what it says. And we remember this from last week, don't we? When the brothers sold Joseph uh, to the traders. In verse 36 of, of 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. All, all of these dreams that Joseph had about who he was going to be have just come crashing to the earth because he is now in another country completely enslaved. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, the narrator has forgotten about him. I mean, we were right following along the, the Joseph story, and in chapter 38, boom, Joseph's gone. And we get to Judah. Remember, he's now the one who's in the key position as far as the whole family line is concerned. And to make matters worse, his only hope, it seemed like, you know, if we page over to chapter 40, we discover that Joseph actually thinks he's got a, a way to get out of prison. And it's this you know, uncanny ability to be able to interpret dreams. And, and the chief cupbearer cut was his only hope. And in the end of chapter 40, we read this. The chief cupbearer, however, didn't remember Joseph. And, and if you missed it, he'll say it again. He forgot him. I mean, there it is. The story has turned on Joseph. Life has turned on Joseph. Joseph seems to leave the story. This, by the way, is not unusual in the book of Genesis. Moses always, it's just this very interesting uh, way to tell a story. Uh, it's done a lot in the, in the book of Genesis. You'll, you'll be introduced to this person, and it seems like they're, the, they're going to be the main character, and then poof, they're gone. Uh, um, uh, you have Abel. And, uh, I mean, he, he, he's like the, the, the person who is worshiping God in and, 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 um, and, and the right way. And all of a sudden it turns, and it's about Cain. Not very long, but the story did turn there. And we see the same thing happening with Jacob and Esau. We think it's about Esau. He's the number one son. Oh, Jacob came out grabbing onto his heel, but, but Esau's the number one son, and this is going to be about him. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's not. He's out of the picture. The story is about Jacob. And you say, okay, it's happening again. We thought the story was about Joseph. Fooled me again. You got me. And now it's going to be about Judah and, uh, and, and Judah's life. Now, has anybody seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Andrew Lloyd Beverly. So, so you already know, right? You know, we get back to Joseph because you've heard the story right before. So let's just, let's, and the narrator actually tells Joseph not to despair because he sings, I've read the book and you come out on top. So let's pretend we didn't go to uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, okay? Let's just pretend we didn't see that, and let's try to read this story the way it's being told for the first time, and, and Joseph is gone. Poof, it's over. And we go to chapter 38, and Judah is introduced, and uh, Judah, his sons marry, and then his sons die. It's not going well for him, uh, but when Tamar, particularly, his, her husband dies, and, and she, she doesn't have any kids. There's no family line there. And so she pleads with Judah to, to you know, I, I need to marry, you know, your next son when he comes along. And, and Judah promises, and Judah doesn't feel, follow through. 
And I mean, 20, chapter 38, I actually had a friend of mine in the ministry, and he says, you know, when you're reading chapter 38, just keep the kids out of the room, because this is R-rated stuff. This is, this is crazy stuff that we read about. It's just, it's just an unbelievable story. And, and Tamar's, her clock is ticking, and, and she needs to have a child, not because she wants to have kids just simply. It's because in that culture, when a woman is, doesn't have kids, having kids, a son in particular, is everything. If you don't have a son, you've got nothing. And, and Tamar knows it. And Judah's made a promise that he's not following through on, so Tamar just devises her own scheme. I, I, I need a son, and I need a son in that family line, and no one's available. Oh yeah, there's Judah. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. Well, Judah goes on a business trip. And um, you wonder, how could she even imagine that this scheme was going to work? And you wonder, I wonder, I wonder if she knew Judah better than we thought she did. I, I, I'm nearly certain this isn't the first time that Judah has made choices like this. She figured out this scheme would work because she knew something about the way Judah lived. And sure enough, there she is, and there it goes. And Tamar's pregnant. Judah finds out. He didn't know who he was having a relationship with. And she's pregnant, and he is screaming mad. And he says, you bring her out, and you have her burned to death. And so we see another aspect of Judah's weakness, his rage in discovering this. And he says, I want her burned to death. And then it all comes out. And in chapter 38, verse 26, Judah says this about Tamar. She is more righteous than I am. To which, all of, uh, uh, to which those of us reading would have to say, that's certainly true. She is more righteous than you. Who were you supposed to be? And what did you turn out to be like? There's a little bit of a piqued interest here because one asks the question, okay, let's see who else is more righteous than Judah. And the story turns to what's happening at the very same time in Egypt where Joseph is living in slavery, and we see one more righteous. But before we get there, at the end of chapter 38, there's this curious inclusion. You see, Tamar has twins, or she's a, about to have twins. And it's a little bit like the Jacob and Esau story, right? And you know where Jacob was clinging on to Esau's heel, and then the whole thing switches around because Esau is exhausted and he wants some red stew. And uh, he actually has a nickname called Edom, Esau does. His nickname is Edom, and it means red stuff because it was the red stuff, it was the red stew that reversed everything. And uh, he turned out to be the loser in the story. Uh, red, uh, the, the, the person who, uh, who uh, swallowed the red soup. And you see what's happening in this story here? There are a couple of twins. It says in verse 27 of 38, 
When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand in, uh, through the birth canal. And, there, and um, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you've broken out. And that child was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and his name was Zara, scarlet, red. This is the second time red loses. And, and, and red loses because, because someone unexpected makes a breach for themselves to get ahead. And it's in this story, Perez, and in the next story to come, it's Joseph. You see, Judah had the privileged position. Watch Joseph make a way for himself. What does it mean for Joseph to make a way for himself? That's what we see next. And you say, I knew it. I knew the story was about Joseph. There's still a twist coming up, and it's going to be a long time before we get there. But, I mean, this is just an extra... I just can't wait to tell you this, this, this uh, kind of final twist in the story. But we'll get there. You're going to have to wait a little bit for But the fact is, it's a fact that Joseph had no reason for hope, and it's because he had no apparent reason for hope that he, this is a story of hope. I mean, he's had these dreams, and he thinks that all of his family is going to bow down to him, and he must believe now that it just must have been the garlic from the night before. I mean, the, there, there's, I, I've got no future. So you've got Judah, on the one hand, who has a future and disregards it, and then you've got Joseph, the one who has no future, and, and he will no longer be regarded. And still, we discover in Egypt, there he is living out life as if it mattered when no one else thought it did. That's where we find him. We find Joseph living out life as if it somehow mattered when, by all counts, it no longer mattered. Unbelievable. It's over, and he's still living like it's not. And it's not like Andrew Lloyd Webber's song streams in to the prison cell and says, I've seen the story, and you come out on top. There is, there's no assurance here of anything. I mean, he's, he's in the middle of hopelessness, human hopelessness. When he was no longer the big deal, when no one was looking at his life, Joseph decides to live with faithfulness. Joseph decided to say about his life, the God I worship, I actually worship him when no one's looking. The God I worship, I actually worship him. When dreams are shattered, the God I worship, I have actually decided to worship him. It begs the question, doesn't it? Who am I when no one's looking? Who are you when no one's looking? Who are you when everything's broken, when your dreams are just in crumbles on the ground, 
everything you hoped for, everything that gave strength to your purpose in life, it's just right there. Who do you become when life becomes like that? But there's a better question, and it's this. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? The text clearly is celebrating the sovereignty of God. And yet it invites this other question. If he is sovereign, and he is, what does it look like to worship him? There's a contrast here of of Judah and his choices and Joseph and his breakthrough to be able to find himself in a place where he's living out worship to God. There's an invitation that is made by God to those of us that are reading this story to look at our lives. What will my life be like? Will my life be like Judah's business trip? I mean, that's what it was. He's got a business trip ahead of him, and what does he do on business trips? It's sort of the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, sure it does, unless you're not that person. Unless you've decided that the vows you've made to another are a part of your worship of no one other than God. The vows you made to God and to someone else. I mean, no one needs to know. Joseph could have said that. There he is. No one needs to know. In fact, I'll bet Potiphar's wife certainly was saying that. Joseph, you're beautiful. I'm beautiful. No one's going to ever know. And Joseph said, you know, that just won't work. Because I decided that the God I worship, I'm actually going to worship. A number of years ago, uh, I joined an organization, and about uh, six months into uh, the, the tenure of a new president, and we were so excited. This guy was a great communicator. He had written some powerful books. Uh, many of us on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship had been just impacted by the stuff he had said and the stuff he had written. And then about six months into his tenure, president of a, of a pretty significant national organization, uh, it all just unravels when they find out that he's been living a lie. Before he ever came uh, to InterVarsity, he, he, just, he just was living a lie. And you know, we're just sitting there, just pounding our heads saying, what? in the world. Can you believe it? I mean, him. Why would that happen? I had someone come, I don't know if they had inside information or, and I don't mean that in a, in a slightly way, but I, I think they kind of knew some of the dynamics at place or thought they did. And they said, you know, I think here's what happened. He, he was in a season of his life where it just had become the same old, same old pastor in a church and just kind of the same stuff week to week and year to year and it just got uninteresting and all the hope of what he thought he might be nothing ever happened and what do you do when one one path gets uninteresting and boring 
but to look perhaps for something else that might be a whole lot more interesting. And just think of the irony of this, that he then finds himself in a position where he's the president of this significant organization, and it all comes crashing down because he thought his dreams had passed him by, and he made choices that shattered it all. So here's what happens. In the crucible, what we are on the inside comes out for others to see. In our vulnerable moments, everyone will live inside out. It happens, doesn't it? There are those moments of challenge or hardship or whatever it is, and it just happens. Everything that's actually in there, it just spills out. And it's, it's, not, as if, it's not as if it just suddenly happens. You see, when it happens, when that stuff spills out, it's because those essential pieces were there all the time. Not noticed, but they're there. And it, 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 it's when the crucible moment comes. It's, it's when the, the vulnerable moment comes, uh, when we're off our game, that it just spills out. And kids see what dads are like in, in those moments. So the question is, so what's on the inside of, of you and me right now? What is it that's seen when you're really mad? What is it that spills out when you feel overlooked? What is it that occurs when you're all alone? All alone. No one will know. And then you realize what's on the inside because of what's coming out. when there's no one to scrutinize what you do. You know, it's that capacity to be able to suddenly pivot. You know, you're in a conversation with, you know, maybe your kids or your spouse, and, you know, they don't really kind of matter quite that much, or you feel like you can be candid with them. And, and then the phone rings, and all of a sudden, you're just your charming self again, right? And what is that pivot about? And what is the stuff that that reveals what is it that it reveals about the stuff that's on the inside? We see somebody that we want to impress and, and we are on our best behavior. When no one is looking, when the pressure is on, the inside, it comes out. And we say, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I want it to spill out. And we got two options. One, resolve that you will never let it come out. Screw down the hatches, do whatever you need to manage it, live a careful life, just say, I'm never going to let it see the light of day. Or the other option is this. What if we changed what's on the inside? 
What if that changed? And we see here courage in this story demonstrated by Joseph's willingness to be faithful because there was something on the inside of Joseph that was different than what was going on in Judah's life. And you, you can't wait till a crisis to do that kind of work. It just doesn't matter. In the midst of the crisis, it's coming out. That's not the time to deal with it. The destructive pieces are deep inside there already. Judah and Joseph, which life do you want? The courage that comes out from within, internal, deep conviction that says, regardless of the circumstances outside, I've already decided who I am. This courageous faithfulness. So what's the solution? I'm going to just take us there as we move to application and conclusion here. Uh, It is this, to focus on external actions that create internal strength. Not in the crisis, but in the day-to-day aspects of life. To focus on external actions that create internal strength. Now, the text doesn't describe that here, but this whole book, it does. It talks about what it means for us to walk with the Lord and focus on the external actions that create internal strength. And the first action, well, we all know it. The first action is this, is we say yes to God and we decide, God, I am not living my life my way anymore. You made me. I want to be the person who lives a life the way you made me to be. I've screwed it up. I'm going to give it to you. And we know enough about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, that he says, okay, I'm really good at handling screw-ups. In fact, if you will let me, if you will give me your life, I will take care of it all. And here's what happens. You say yes to me, and, and Scripture says this, that a supernatural thing happens, and God comes into a human life. And he does work there. It's not like God comes over and says, okay, give me your paper. I'm going to just stamp that. Boom, forgiven. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? He stamps our heart. The Holy Spirit, we're sealed with the Spirit. And there's this incredible thing that happens supernaturally. The transformative power of God in one's life because they simply said the same thing the thief did on the cross. Would you remember me? Here I am. God says... I'm there. That's the first thing that happens. And after this, there's work that we do, and in God's word, it calls it training in righteousness. You, you page back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, All scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, for rebuking. I need a rebuke once in a while. For correcting and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Training in righteousness because we can be trained. This is oftentimes described as spiritual discipline. It's a term that's oftentimes used. And in spiritual disciplines, it's, it's not the moment of failure in the midst of the crisis that counts. It's the moments of training that occur in the regular course of life. So you say, oh, I blew it again. All right. Don't focus on that. Focus on what you're going to do as a part of training in righteousness with every day of your life. 
And that's what God wants for you. He's not going to sit there and point at that one and that one and that one. He's going to say, here it is. This is what training in righteousness looks like. And there are two aspects of this. Spiritual discipline. Spiritual is the first part of it. That God, through his spirit, actually works in our lives. Now, all of us are made in the image of God. And so we will see actions and attitudes exhibited in anybody in the world because they were made in the image of God. Unfortunately, we won't see some of those things in us. And so God does a reparative way, work. God does the restoration that's necessary so that I can actually become that person that I was made to be. God made me to be a person of love. Guess what? He does his work, and I will be restored to what I was intended to be in the first place. He does his work, and I will be restored and become that faithful one that I was meant to be in the first place. It's what he does. Because it's a spiritual thing. It's not a checklist. It's supernatural intervention in a person's life. And you know this is true, don't you? I have seen it time and time again in my life and the lives of people around me. I just shake my head and I say, I can't believe it. God is doing it again. God is creating faithfulness where there was only unfaithfulness. God is creating compassion when there was only anger. God just does it. He just does it. It's a spiritual, spiritual discipline. And it's necessary because, frankly, spiritual disciplines can unhinge, lead to pride and obligation and legalism. But if we invite the Holy Spirit in, he just does his work. And then it is discipline as well. It's training like an athlete does. Serious attention is part of noble accomplishments. And he invites us into this. We can train ourselves, act yourselves into right ways of thinking. It's, it's what happens. I have a friend of mine, uh, some of you know, Sudhir and Deva from India. And Sudhir uh, uh, was talking about marriage in India as opposed to in the United States. And he says, you know, there's love marriage. Even in India, there are love marriages and there are arranged marriages. And he said, you know, it's so interesting to watch the trajectory of the two of them. Love marriages oftentimes don't last nearly as effectively as arranged marriages do. Isn't that crazy? An arranged marriage has a stronger possibility of enduring than a loved marriage. And this is what they say. You know, in a love marriage, you go in because you know what you're going to get out of it. In a arranged marriage, you know, you walk into it and you know there's work to be done. Act yourselves into right ways of thinking. Decide to love and guess what happens. It's, it, it's just the way we were made. Spiritual disciplines, I want to mention one and then we can uh, uh, move forward. In my experience growing up, I grew up in a church where they didn't say anything about fasting. And I just kind of thought, I mean, there was a denomination on the other side of town that we thought was crazy anyway. Uh, and, and they seemed to talk about it, and I never did. And then I, I grew up, and I had some friends of mine talking about fasting, and they said, you know, it's actually in the Bible. Right there next to where Jesus says, when you pray, this is the way you should pray. He says, when you fast, this is how you're to fast. Huh, imagine that. It's actually right there. It's not just with those crazy people across town. It's actually something he invites us into. And I decided I was going to do a little research, figure this out, 
and make it a part of my regular spiritual disciplines of life. And you know what I discovered as I ventured into it? I discovered this growing capacity inside of me to say no to the things that I, I couldn't before. It's lunchtime. My stomach's saying, feed me. And I'm saying, no. No. I've decided that I'm going to worship God in a new way. And God just gave me a capacity to be able to say no to stuff I desired or longed for by the simple exercise of saying no to something as commonplace as food. And you see, God invites us into this because in the day-to-day behaviors and actions of life, they actually can build from the outside in so that what's on the inside comes out. And my kids see me in a tough situation and something spills out of me that wasn't there before. And my kids say, wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And that's what God wants for us as well. So my question for you this morning is, what is the internal weakness that God might have actually exposed or brought to mind for you? And what tools might you use that would help you create inside that when it spills out brings joy to you and glory to God. I will say God's invitation to us is through the power of his Holy Spirit to be involved in training in righteousness as challenging as it might be because it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you are gracious, forgiving God, but that you are also an empowering God as well too. And God, I pray that you'd help us to walk out of this room with that kind of hope in the midst of whatever it is that is crashing down. I pray that you'd help us to walk out of here with that kind of hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.